Uh, well, we're going to continue as the children uh, head off. Obviously, we're going to continue to worship this morning. And we have been looking at the Gospel of Mark. You uh, see we have a table set here this morning, and we'll talk about that later on in the service. But for now, we're going to focus on the Word and continue in this series we've been talking about. We, we've stressed repeatedly, right, but the Gospel of Mark is super easy to read. And I would encourage you guys, if you've not yet done it, to read it as uh, we read it together. Today's kind of a big day, and it's funny that the storm came and all that stuff, and, you know, we were on the fence about whether we have service or not, because we've been talking for so many weeks now about this season of preparation for the disciples, who he calls apostles, right, Jesus. Um, he, he goes to ordinary people, and I think it's important that we realize that they're ordinary people. We have a tendency, I believe, and, and this is a failure that we have in our, our, I think, our modern context, to differentiate ourselves from biblical characters, right? A couple different ways. I remember one time I was uh, going to Wash U, and they taught a class called The Bible as Mythical Literature. That was the only Bible class I could find at Wash U at the time. And I thought, what are they talking about? Mythical literature. But it's this idea that, well, it's so ancient. You know, I was about this morning. It's ancient text. It can't possibly really apply truly to our modern lives. And I think this works in a couple different ways. Um, one is that we see the characters of the Bible as different from ourselves. In other words, when we read their stories, when we read the story of Jesus or his disciples or his apostles, we think, well, that can't possibly apply to us now right here for real in Highland, Illinois, in my job where I work or, or whatever is going on in my life. But then the second way that we, I think, miss the boat on this is that we not only see them as unattainable for ourselves, but we actually believe that we know better than they did or do. I, I think it's hard to really understand that because we're immersed in our culture, but we have what you might call a cultural arrogance, that this is the modern world, that these are modern times, that things have changed, and that's why we would call something like that a, a, a mythical book, an ancient book. Maybe you can take it as an allegory, but not as a literal historical account of a true person named Jesus Christ or as true people who followed him, as ordinary men and women whom Jesus came through and said, hey, follow me. And I want to make a little bit of a point of that this morning as we get in, because today we're going to talk about the reality that blows my mind in the gospel, and that I probably struggle with in my life more than any other part of the gospel. You see, I don't have a problem believing the gospel. I've realized this week as I've prayed through this and, and wrestled with the text I don't have a problem believing the gospel necessarily in my head and even in my heart. I don't have a problem trusting Jesus, but the struggle of my life comes from what we will see happen today. If you've been here for a while, you know what I'm talking about. They've been in this apostolic training period where Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. The same men that he called to himself from like their various, you know, duties as fishermen and tax collectors and other things, he's now going to send out into the world to be part of what he's doing. And so we're going to talk about that today. And, and why, and I don't think I have an answer to this exactly, except he chose to, but why Jesus would do that? Why? And, and what really connects us, in my thought, back to this reality of the text, is the same struggles that we have today, not with believing in Jesus, but, with, but in being sent by Jesus, is the same struggles they must have had then. Interesting stuff. So we spent from Mark 3 to Mark 6 
uh, preparing, and it's important to recognize there's a season of preparation, true, but there's also a season of sending. It does happen. He doesn't prepare his people forever. So we're going to talk about that today from Mark chapter 6. Before we get into the word exactly, um, I want to do what we always do. We want to pray. We believe that God is inspiring us uh, to understand his word. He inspired his word to be written, and it should be lived out by his people who believe in him. So we want to go together today and pray to the Lord. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we give you thanks and praise today for the very act of worship that we can come here as part of our worship of our lives. And we recognize, Father, that it's not just here in this middle school, funny enough, right, Father, on a Sunday where we worship you, but it's every day of our lives, every breath that we breathe, this worship to you, that it's owed back to you because of your created glory, because of who you are. And Father, today as we um, continue in your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it, that truly you would open our mind's eye or our um, eyes of our heart, you know, the, the, the perceiving and the believing parts of our lives, that we could fully grasp, or maybe just a little more grasp, what you're revealing, the truth you're revealing through Scripture. We pray, Father God, that um, in, in all these things you're glorified. <laughs> we pray, Father, that uh, you would bless your people. And Lord, I'm going to pray that you would give us courage, courage that we might need to actually live like believers in your name. We love you so much. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your presence and to be instructed by your Holy Spirit. We pray that would happen now for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, side note. We'll see if this is true. While I was praying, this is totally crazy. I'm just going to tell you, last week, Lori, I think Lori Stoker said, I think it's your beard making the mic pop. <laughs> Did you say that? I was praying, and I, this is driving me nuts, and I bent it out, and it stopped popping. So maybe it was my beard the whole time, Lori. Oh, gosh, that's so weird, isn't it? <laughs> okay, anyway. Okay, Mark 6. Here we go, guys. We're going to jump into Mark 6 and talk about the word. We have Mark 6, chapter 6, is we're going to look at today. We're, and we, we don't have a whole lot today, so we're going to kind of spend some time in talking through this. Um, I want to just remember that, when, that right at the heels of where we are now, Jesus had just been amazed at the lack of faith in his hometown. We had seen people who were desperate for Jesus, kind of clinging to Jesus. But then now we have this moment where right after, as a matter of fact, it's part of the same verse, it says, And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Those who knew him the best didn't believe he could do what he says he could do or what he had done or that he was who he said he was necessarily, which we'll see that come uh, to play again. So then verse 6 continues, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So, and I want to just stop for a minute and talk about that. So he has these experiences where people were desperate for him. He, we've seen the miracles of Jesus, his authority, which is a key word today, over demons and over um, uh, the, the powers of the world, over healing and our very being, our, our, uh, our health. And then we, we also know, of course, that he's claiming authority over sin, which is the, the big overarching issue in our life, in our world. But even in this point of discouragement, which it must have been discouraging for him in his hometown, he doesn't stop doing what he does. It says what? In the same verse, he continues to teach from village to village. Right? So after all of his ministry, he keeps on teaching. The disciples see this. 
the disciples see that um, he's had these miraculous, you know, um, miraculous uh, revelations of who he is. They've also seen his hometown not believe, but they've seen Jesus continue to teach from village to village. So here we go. We're waiting for it. Verse 7. Calling the twelve, interesting, to himself, he sent them out, or he began to send them two by two, and gave them authority over evil spirits. So here comes this moment of disciples' lives. They've been called apostles. Jesus said, I'm going to apostle you. And maybe they sort of think, maybe he's not going to apostle us. But Jesus calls the twelve. Remember, there were many more people coming to Jesus at this point, right? Like many people had come and, and um, pressed in remember last week. But he calls these twelve and he begins to send them out. And a couple things I want to kind of think about a little bit this morning in the sending out process with Jesus. I mentioned there was a lot of people gathered around. Matter of fact, you remember last week, there's so many people pressing in. In the other text, it says, uh, how can we know who touched you? There are people everywhere, right? I mean, it's crowds and crowds. But so far, it's been enough for a disciple of Jesus to get lost in the crowd of believers and non-believers following him around. Does that make sense? In other words, there was a few people that Jesus went to directly and said, you follow me. And, that, and we said, yeah, we'll follow you. But there's been a season where it's enough to walk around behind Jesus and go, wow, this is amazing what you're doing. Jesus is so cool. But in this moment, Jesus does what he says he's going to do. And he calls those 12 that he said he was going to make apostles to himself. Now, maybe when they first came forward, the 12, Jesus said, hey, guys, come here, come here, come here, come here. And they went over to him and they're like, okay, cool, we're going to spend some time with Jesus. And maybe he's going to teach us some more of the parable stuff or he's going to explain some things to us. And then he does this crazy thing, which I, I think sometimes if we don't look at the text and we, ask, we don't ask questions of the text, like why would it say that? We miss so much in the Bible. We miss so much. Because one question I have right away is, why did he send them out two by two? Why? And I've always had some theories in my mind about this. I thought, well, you know, because you don't want to go by yourself, <laughs> right? Um, maybe so you don't cheat. I don't know, so you don't just go hide in a bush somewhere and then come back later and act like you went. You know, somebody is an accountability partner, we would say, maybe. Send you out. It kind of reminds you of like, um, if you've ever seen like traveling salesmen, they, they, they would maybe go out and they would have somebody go with them. But I, I, have, I have to believe there must have been a moment for these 12, because they're human like us, where when you're in the crowd, you're feeling pretty good about Jesus. And whenever you're going with the 12 who you've known really intimately, you're feeling pretty good about Jesus. But when Jesus says, okay, you and you, you go that way, that must have been a really scary moment. Like, that Jesus is serious about sending people out. He's not joking around. When he says, yeah, you come follow me, he wants you to follow him. But he says, I'm going to apostle you. He wants to apostle you. And that that's a very real thing for him. That he, that he was serious. And there must have been a moment, I can't imagine, whenever you're going with the one you've been assigned to go with and you're walking away, you're like, okay, we're going, Jesus. He's like, yeah, yeah, you got it. No, we're going to really go. And you kind of slow walk out the door, like, we're leaving. Because everything you've known to your point in this life about the gospel of Jesus has been about what Jesus has been doing. Do you see that? Like, everything we've talked about in the gospel of Mark has been miraculous because Jesus has been doing it. But now he says, I'm going to send you out two by two. And he does. That means if you do some math, simple math, of the 12, there were six groups sent out. The text also says he began to send them out. So it ain't like necessarily he held them up and said, okay, you two, you two, you two, and break. And everybody went at the same time. And you kind of feel that kind of launching thing. He just kind of said, you two go. And you two go. 
and you to go. Go out into the world. I'm going to apostle you. There is very little information here about what exactly the expectation was upon those disciples to do. What should they do when they were sent out? Up to this point, they've been following Jesus just like the crowds. They've been believing and hearing and being amazed with Jesus just like the crowds. They've probably been questioning and struggling just like the crowd. But now he sends them out two by two, just like he said he would. I just want us to see that. Now you might say, well, I, you know, that's fine, and they're apostles. But they're not different from us. And so I kind of want to ask a question this morning of the church, of those who are believing in Jesus, who, who have begun to follow in their lives, that if Jesus were to say to you, now you and you go over there, would, would, that, would you do that? And, and not like we always say, you know, like, well, yeah, I'll go when Jesus goes in front of me. No, he's going to send you out from him. That just blows me away. And, and I would say that based on what I see as far as um, people who um, really feel, um, I guess, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, like uh, who become a missionary or who become a pastor or who become an intentional ambassador for Christ at their place of work, not a Sunday attender, not someone who worships all the time, not someone who can talk church talk, but someone who actually goes out and believes that part of their nine-to-five job is being sent out by God himself to share good news. I don't know that many of us in the church believe that. And I'm not putting myself up in some kind of thing because when I go out, I'm not sure that I believe that. I spent the week this week doing some snowboarding. And it was easy to get out there and detach that from my gospel call in my life. And, and I can't tell you, it's not like, you know, I'm going to, every stranger I meet, hey, do you know Jesus? But do I actually recognize that even in that activity, or even in my vacation, or even in my, um, you know, my time at work, uh, that, that that is part of God's gospel ambition for the world, is sending out his disciples. If you think about it, it seems, and we'll see more of this, it's a normative response. I would also say it's something that the church does not do easily. None of us. None of us. God goes to great extremes to move us from simple followers to those who are sent to the world. So these guys go from basically being in the crowd to being on the front line. And they also can't deny what they've been seeing in Jesus. See, the rules aren't the same anymore. They can't just go out and, and be nice enough. There's some miraculous things happening that they've seen Jesus do, and so being sent out. Let's just say this. Let's read what else it says. He sent them out two by two, and look at what it says. He gave them authority over evil spirits. Maybe if Jesus just sent them out, they'd be like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But when he gave them authority over evil spirits, it becomes kind of obvious he wants them to do something with what they've been given. Just to make a little point here, Jesus had authority to give away. He absolutely had authority over the spiritual battle that was happening, that is happening in the lives of people. And here when it says he gave them authority over evil spirits, it meant that he was enlisting them in the war. That they'd seen him fight. Right? So he sends them out and he gives them authority. You wonder as they go out, well, aren't they doomed to fail? Aren't they doomed to fail? I mean, no, no one has seen anything like Jesus yet. And now when he sends them out, there's just, I can't imagine they thought there's just no way this is going to work like it worked with Jesus. And another question I had when I was thinking about this is, why can't Jesus just keep doing what he's been doing? Like he's been drawing big crowds. He's been healing people. 
he don't even have to go places to do it. He can just do it from anywhere. And, and I think that that's something that as believers in Jesus, we should wrestle with. Like, not how is Jesus all-powerful, and I mean, because that's true. I mean, we can talk about the, the theology of Christ and who he is and the fullness of him. And I, that's what I'm saying about, like, I get that in my head, in my heart. But why does Jesus choose, desire, want to actually have you and I go out in our lives as part of his mission? And if you think it's too big of a question, well, why did he do it with them? Why did Jesus send them out? Was he short-handed? Did he need the help? I, I don't think that that's true. There's something in the discipleship um, life, the life of a disciple, that this is part of the, the training, the reality of who we are in Christ. He chose to send them out. Like I said, there's scant information about, about motivation, except we see he does give them authority over the evil spirits, and it was his to give. Okay, fair enough. That was a lot, just like the, the little introduction, but it gets weirder. I'm just telling you right now, because if we're going to read this, so we get that he gave them the authority over the evil spirits, but it says in verse 8, these were then were his instructions, okay? So he's going to send them out. Here's, he's going to give them some stuff to, to do, take with them and whatnot. Get ready for the trip. Here goes, take nothing except a staff. And he's going to articulate what nothing means. Don't take any bread with you on this trip, disciples, right? Apostles. And that just means no food, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. It means you're going to leave empty-handed, no food with you. Don't take a bag. Don't, it's just like a backpack. It's a satchel. It's whatever you need to take on the journey. You know, even if you go somewhere like overnight, you want to pack an overnight bag, right? Have you ever seen that? Or even if you send a kid to a sleepover, you give them a little scrunchie, like that little thing that Chris was wearing. You give them some little thing that has their stuff in it. Jesus says, no, don't take your backpack with you either. Don't, don't take a purse. Not for money. I'm talking about just a purse for everything else you carry, right? Don't, don't, don't take anything like that. So, no food. Okay, Jesus. No backpack, right? This is one of my favorite ones. Um, no money in your belts. Um, and it, it's like, don't take any money belts. I, I have a couple of thoughts that came to mind. It literally was something you bound around your waist, but I thought like it's like a fanny pack, right? <laughs> it was like the old school fanny pack. And fanny packs are really weird because they get really popular whenever I was younger. And then they, everyone realized how ridiculous they really were to wear, right? And, and so people quit wearing fanny packs. I'm sorry if some of you still wear fanny packs. Because guess what, though? Good news for you. They're coming back, fanny packs. People are starting to wear them again because they're kind of practical. And, and so it's this, it's this girding belt that you wear that you put your money in. It's not your purse. That's why I said, right, for money. It's just a, not a bag for your clothes and stuff. It's just a, a place to store your treasure, you wear things on a fanny pack. The places I see fanny packs the most are like, like uh, Disney. <laughs> because it's the safest place, isn't it? No one's going to get in my fanny pack without me knowing it. It's a very intimate space. Same deal here, right? But don't take it. One other a story uh, that came to mind is my wife's grandparents used to travel a lot. How many of you have actually ever seen a money belt? Yeah. Very few, right? I was amazed because he was talking about his travel and the wisdom in his traveling when he would travel, he would go from Highland to Texas every year. He would carry money in his money belt. And the money belt really, really was a belt that you could unzip the back of and it had money in it. You could stash money all in your belt. And it wouldn't look like anything but a regular belt. And the reason that he explained to me, because I said, I was like, wow, that's really cool. I've never seen a money belt. It's the only one I've ever seen in my life, money belt. I was like, that's really cool. 
And he said, the reason is because if something were to happen and you were to get robbed or you were, you were to fall, you know, just get in trouble, you got your money belt, right? No one's going to say, give me that belt. You know, probably not, wouldn't say that, you know. And so it's like putting money in your shoe, right, or something like that. It's like some place where you keep a secret stash of security so that if everything goes wrong, you can still survive. You still have options. The robber leaves. He took everything you own. He's like, ha-ha, I got it all. And you're like, you didn't get the money belt. That's how that works. And I say that because I think, well, why would Jesus not want them to take a, a, a money belt or a fanny pack or whatever, you know, for their security? But he doesn't, it seems he doesn't want them to have any, any other solutions on them. He doesn't want them to secret anything. He doesn't want them to have some uh, alternative plan if the Jesus plan doesn't work. That's the way I read this. He doesn't, so no food. No backpack, no fanny pack. Wear a pair of sandals, but not an extra tunic. So I did look up tunic to see what it was. Best I can tell, it's underwear. No extra underwear. Like, it's the layer you wear closest to your skin. It's the way it's described, right? So, so you don't even get to bring any extra underwear. You literally go with the clothes on your back. And a weird thing, I know sandals were probably... Maybe the sandals were a given for them. Maybe, I mean, maybe sometimes you went barefoot, so sandals were a nice, a luxury. But I've actually traveled in sandals a little bit, and it's kind of a, it's nice whenever you're on smooth terrain, but sandals can be kind of sketchy too, right? They can be kind of hard to run away in. Um, they can be hard to navigate um, certain terrain in. You'd rather have closed-toed shoes, which I don't know if they even had that then, right? So maybe it was a gift, not barefoot, but with sandals. I don't know. But no extra underwear. So you got what you got, and you got, and it ain't much. That's all you get. But of all those things he said that he wants disciples to take with them, or not take with them, because it's really a list of don'ts, isn't it? It's not a list of do's. It's like no bread, no backpack, no extra underwear, no money, no money belt, sandals, that's it. You go, just like you are, disciples. Hit it. Hit the road. He says, take a staff. Take a staff with you, though. And I thought that was interesting, too. I think of a staff being like a, maybe a walking stick, Right? And my immediate th thinking here is, well, maybe it's for, like, um, helping on the journey. You know, I've used a walking stick in the woods before. It's kind of nice. And I started thinking about a staff. And there's a couple of things. There is something about a staff. It's about uh, having some authority. That's true. If you were sent with a certain staff, it meant you could show it to people and you'd have authority to do things. You remember in the Old Testament, Moses had a staff, didn't he? And he could do great miracles with the staff. Remember that? It was a sign of God's presence. Hey, God's with me. I got a staff. But there's also a practical thing about staffs that if you encounter people on the road, you have something in your hands. And I began to think, maybe it's because I'm a dude, I started thinking like, it's kind of like a weapon. Staffs are usually, I don't know how tall that staff would be, but it would, you know, I would think about as tall as you are, right? Probably not a cane, probably not a huge, you know, shepherd's crook thing. But you know, it would allow you to create some distance if you got in some trouble. It would allow you to threatening, you know what I mean? You could throw down a threatening posture if things started to go sideways. You maybe even have to get into a fight with a staff. Isn't that interesting? Only take the staff. It could be, a, this is the staff that Jesus gave me. It could be a reminder of the Old Testament. It could be a reminder of God's presence and power. It could just be something to beat people away if things get really, really ugly on the road. When I'm thinking, I'm thinking, this sounds really dangerous for the apostle. I, I don't think this sounds safe at all being sent out like that. Like, I don't know how it was for you, but if I was ever sent out by somebody who loved me on a long journey, they would say, hey, take extra clothes, right? Um, 
take extra money in case something goes wrong. Make sure you got enough food for the journey. Not, don't take anything but the stick and go. And I think that we live in such a, a safe, like if there's one thing you say to anyone, it's like, hey, be safe, man. Be safe, right? But this does not seem safe to me at all, what Jesus is doing here when he sends them out. It does not seem safe. Going to strange towns as strangers with nothing but a stick because I sent you. All right, we'll leave that there. A little more here. Verse 10, anytime you enter a house, right, stay there until you leave that town. So find a place to stay. Find someone who's willing to put you up for nothing and then hang out there. Stay there until you leave that town. So you're going to, so this is a long journey. This isn't like an instant kind of back in the afternoon kind of day trip thing. They're going out. They're going town to town. He was going to village to village, remember? And they're going to go and they're going to do what they're called to do, what they feel compelled to do, what they're led to do in the sending of Jesus. But they have to depend on people's hospitality. And they, and they should stay in that one spot, right, until they leave that town. But in verse 11, it's got this interesting thing here. It says, and if any place will not welcome you or not listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as you leave as a testimony against them. So it's not just like you get to show up and be the nice guy, and if people, you know, they let you in, you stay at their house, you become really good friends, you tell all their neighbors about Jesus, and when you're done, you leave. There's a double kind of, um, a double-edged sword here where if the people don't receive you, and that would mean a, a people of a house wouldn't receive you, or a people of a town wouldn't receive you, the people of any place if they were not open to this message that God is sending to them, the disciples, the apostles, have an obligation to then shake the dust off of their feet as they leave, that the dust might testify against this household or against this town or against this village or community, that they would not hear from God. I don't know how that would sit with you, but I wouldn't, I don't know how, like, how long do you plead with people to let you stay there and hear what you're going to share with them before you decide to shake off this dust that's going to testify against them, that they rejected God, that they rejected what God was doing, that they weren't even willing to hear it or entertain it or think about it. See, sometimes, I, I, maybe some people are more vindictive, and they would say, I'm going to shake my dust off my sandals, but I, I, I can't believe that would be the heart of God. I think it would be such a tragic thing if one of the, and why would you just say to do it if it didn't actually happen? If they never had to shake dust off their sandals toward a community or a household for rejecting God, then why would Jesus tell them to do it? Because there will be those who will reject, and there are dire consequences. And the rocks do cry out and give testimony. So basically, if they won't have you there, you move on. You move on. Still, I would say one of the hardest things about being a Christian, right there, one of the hardest things about being a Christian is what, when do you, how do you determine where that point is where you say, I've done what I can do, I'm moving on, I can't do any more here. And that the earth is going to testify against you that you've rejected God. Not rejected me, not rejected, you know, what we're trying, but rejected God himself in this moment. All right, so those are all instructions. Don't take anything except a stick, and then go and stay in the house, you know, talk to that, spend some time in that town, and if anyone rejects you in any place, shake the dust off as you leave as a testimony against them. Verse 12. So here's the amazing thing. They went out. Just like that. The apostles, the disciples, they went out when Jesus said go. And look, I, I think it's interesting to look at what they did. It says, they preached that people should repent. Where did they hear that before? It wasn't in the instructions that Jesus gave them. Right? 
I, I, to remind all of you, to repent, repent means to turn around. It means to turn 180 degrees the opposite direction of the way you're heading right now. You think about repentance had a long uh, storied history. It's always been the message. You have to change. You have to stop. You have to turn back to God. I think, well, that wasn't given the instructions, but you remember that Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom of God, saying, repent and believe the good news. Turn. They had seen Jesus say this over and over again, right? Stop doing what you're doing and return to God. You belong to God. God loves you. God cares for you. Return to Him. The kingdom of God is near. It's not far away. Just turn and believe good news. And the disciples, when they get out on the street, or, you know, on the road by themselves, they begin to preach that message. You all must repent. You all must repent. One of the things that I've been struck by lately is that very often, and I got this when we talked about this uh, from last week, the man who ran to Jesus and said, get away from me, Jesus, that the, the reality is that the gospel is often, and this has been said before, bad news before it's good news. It's often harsh. It's often rejected. It often sounds intolerant or unloving. You have to stop doing what you're doing and turn to God. That's what the gospel message says. And so much of our lives is filled with things we'd rather focus on instead of God. And so we're going the wrong way. And we're going there fast. So they come and they preach to the people that you must repent. You should repent. That's one of the things they did. And then the second thing is they said this. It says, they drove out many demons. That's the second thing they did. So the spiritual battle that we saw Jesus in the disciples entered right into it with him in a very real way. And we've talked about this before. I'm not sure what our level of comfort is with this. And I'm not sure what my level of comfort is with this. I've seen things I cannot explain. I've experienced things I cannot explain spiritually. But I know that the testimony of Scripture is that there are demonic forces at work. And that part of being a follower of Jesus is to be fighting that fight. To at least not be ignorant of that fact that there are spiritual warfare going on. But at best, to enter into the fight, to ask the question, what's happening? What's happening spiritually in all of this? So they went out and they cast out, they drove out demons, these apostles. And then it says, the third thing they did, so the first, they preached repentance. The second, they drove out demons. And the third, that they anointed sick people with oil and healed them. I'm going to say this again. I can't, I, I'm sure we have a tendency to dissociate ourselves from the experience. But that's not fair because they're people like us. So can you imagine the first time they went out with the staff and nothing else and they were being hosted and they began to do what Jesus did and what Jesus did when they did it worked for them too. Did you think they were amazed by that? Up to this point, they'd only seen Jesus do it. But when Jesus sent them out, they were part of doing what Jesus was doing. They began to see the same signs of his sovereignty of his divinity in their own lives. Don't miss that. They're preaching the message of repentance, but they're also driving out demons and healing people because they're sent by Jesus, because he sent them out. Now, I, I do want to say um, one other thing about the equipping that happened here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. So the list is what not to take, not what you should take. The list is what not to take with you. But then the action is to go with nothing. And so as I think about that and the reality of when they get out there and they begin to preach the repentance, uh, the repentance of, uh, for repentance from sin, and, and they begin to um, 
cast out demons and they begin to see people healed and anoint people with oil. They begin to do these things in Jesus' name as acts of faith, believing because he sent me, I'm going to go do it and I'm just going to see what happens. And they begin to see results. The truth is that because they have nothing else to uh, credit, they can only credit Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, if they had taken enough equipment along, if they had taken enough, a good program along, if they had taken a good, you know, philosophical argument along, they could have said, hey, I did pretty good. But they had none of that stuff. They preached what Jesus preached. They demonstrated what he demonstrated. And all they could do is say, this is not because of me. This is because of Jesus. He sent me out with nothing. He called me out of my, my life and into this whole new world. And there would be nothing that, that they could attribute their success to except Jesus. I don't know. I say, that, I say that because I think so often we think, maybe you don't. Listen with me. If I only had fill in the blank, I could be more effective for Jesus. I got people in my life that, that I would love to know the Lord. But if I only had a little more training, if I only had a tract, if I only had some way I could show them, if I only had something else, then I could maybe be effective. But one of the powerful, overarching messages that we get from this Jesus uh, sending these folks out is that his sending is enough. That him saying go is enough, and we go. And it means that we do get out of the crowd who's amazed by Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you're doing so good. Keep doing that stuff, man. We'll hang out right here and we'll keep cheering for you to say no. We're going to get on the field and we're going to go in Jesus' name and we're going to be part of what he's doing. And if there's success in it, we're going to say, hey, praise Jesus. And if there's not success, we're going to shake off our dust and say, we're moving on because God has got something going on here and the people need to know. Look at the last verse, 14. King Herod, who's the ruler, right? He's the man. He's in charge. He says this, King Herod heard about all of this because Jesus' name had become well known. King Herod didn't just hear about Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, and the miracles of Jesus. But King Herod began to hear about the apostles, the disciples, the people who were being changed and transformed. And what he knew of it, in the end, was it was all linked to Jesus. I say that because, in the end, that's the goal. Is that Jesus will be made known. <laughs> it's, it's not that... Look, look what we can do, the apostles. Look at how cool this is. Look, people are being healed. Like, none of that is the point. The point is that Jesus is made known and made known to Herod. And we're going to cover that next week. But made known to Herod in such a way that he freaks out about it. Herod understands rightly the threat that Jesus is in the world. And if people actually believe that they're part of what Jesus is doing and that God is sending them out and that when they go and they are obedient in that, that he is with them in it, that he is at working through them, that changes everything. And Herod hears that Jesus, the name of Jesus has become well known. See, the truth is, I think, and I get that this is a hard thing, but I think we're sent by Jesus. And we talked a while back about, well, are we really sent or not? Were they the ones sent? And we're just supposed to hang out here and, you know, um, do church stuff and, you know, be good boys and girls until Jesus comes back to save us from all the sin that we're stuck in. Um, do you think that that's the totality of the gospel? Or do you think it's possible that Jesus says, come follow me now, I'm going to send you out into the world. And I want you to do things. And I, I don't think it's unfair uh, of me to say that that is an expectation of the church. I'm thinking about... Um, 
later on when Paul writes and he says, do these things that you might prove your faith. It doesn't mean prove it like I'm going to prove. I, I, I'm, in other words, I'm going to be convinced because when I go out and do these things, God shows up. I'll tell you this, I've seen enough of you step out of your comfort zone in this church, Family Bible Church, and do things that you thought were beyond capacity for you, which they were, that you, I've seen enough of those things happen that when you do it, you, you are blown away because God shows up in that moment, and we're all amazed. I can just recount time after time that's happened in our lives as a church family. The truth is, we can be amazed, but we should be doing that more. We should all be doing that more. Living out our faith. Believing. And this sounds crazy, this sounds crazy, but going without Jesus. Going without Jesus in front of us, but going without Jesus because we know that He has authority. So you don't have to wait for that certain person, that certain pastor, that certain friend to tell someone else about the good news. You can be part of that because Jesus is enough. He's enough, and He has all authority. I want us to think about that today. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and pray. Um, I'm going to pray with us right now. And then we're going to sing a final song, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish worship today together. Uh, Father God, I just thank you so much for the truth of your scripture, um, for the testimony of the saints who come before us. And, and Father, I want to confess and apologize for how we put these men and women on a separate shelf from us and act as if, as if they're completely different from us, as if they weren't flesh and blood following you with all the failures that we have and all the concerns that we have and the brokenness that we have. And Father, I want to confess and apologize and ask forgiveness for the truth that there is nothing that the disciples had in you that we don't have in you right now. That there's no presence, that there's no assurance, that there's no loving uh, voice shepherding, guiding us that they had from Jesus that we don't have from you right now. And so Father, I just pray today that we would take courage in, in that truth of our relationship with you. I do pray, Father, if there are those here who are still just smired in their sin and they don't have a way out and they don't believe in Jesus, that would be the first step of faith, just to believe that Jesus died for their sins and would set them free. Call them into freedom, Father God, from sin. Call them in freedom from, from uh, brokenness. I pray that we would have courage to repent and turn away from things that are not of you and back towards you, that we might follow you and believe in you. And then I pray, Father, that when that moment comes, when you're like, you're going to send us out, and you know how stubborn and broken we are in that, and how much we're resistant to change and don't want to take risks. You know how that is so true for us. I pray that moment you would, you would really move heaven and earth, that you would do things to compel us into this true life that we have in you. That we would know it fully, know you fully, bring glory to you as you deserve, that, that your name might be, might be made famous throughout the world. We thank you so much for the truth of Scripture. We thank you so much for brothers and sisters who've gone before us. I thank you so much for brothers and sisters who've been great testimony right here at Family Bible Church. I pray that we continue to be faithful to you in these things. May you be glorified as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.